Hello, everybody. This is Andrew Gomison with the Speaking For Him podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. We will be digging into the fourth installment of our Characteristics of the Love of God series. And if this episode ministers to you, please share it with your family and friends. Really appreciate the word of mouth and just the opportunity to reach even more people. And we will get into the main section of our show in a little while. But first, I want to share with you what is going on. Well, this week is the last week of school for the Potter's House kids, so just continue to pray that they finish strong. It's been really exciting to see some of the things going on around the school and that there were some things that are happening that will have a long-term impact at the school and not just a short-term impact of those two weeks. We have a community garden uh, that went in, and we also have a woodworking track that built some picnic tables and has also been working on some decking for low-income housing. So that is really exciting to see the kids get excited about those projects and to become personally invested in important projects that will benefit not just them but others who will who will come after them. So I'm very excited uh, to have seen that come together and the camaraderie that those type of programs and opportunities build. From time to time since 1973, when Roe v. Wade was handed down, people talk about having it repealed or having it challenged in court. And every once in a while, there comes a case that appears to be headed in that trajectory. And usually, the court does not take the opportunity to hear the case. Usually, it just kind of stops there with a wishful desire that they would hear the case. Well, an announcement was made uh, in the last couple of weeks that the Supreme Court will indeed hear a case on the constitutionality of the 15-week abortion ban um, at the in the in the state of Mississippi, and this uh, case could be a really good challenge for the Roe versus Wade decision. Now. A couple of things I want to say here. First of all, I think it's important for people to realize that Roe versus Wade, uh, you know, rescinding Roe versus Wade would not make abortion illegal in all of the 50 states. Some people um, put that forth and they say we can't let Roe fall because abortion needs to stay the law of the land. But what a lot of people don't realize is that Roe versus Wade simply took the power of choosing for life or for abortion out of the hands of the states and made it a broad sweeping declaration that abortion should be allowed in all 50 states. And it was actually the companion case of Doe versus Bolton, which made sure that that would be legal basically in all 50 states for any reason. So I have a couple clips that I want to share with you. Um, Cut one is... Charlie Kirk from the Charlie Kirk show talking with the director of students for life and asking her a very important question about how do we deal with people who say they believe abortion is wrong, but they still think it should be the law. 
What's the argument that you make that that which is wrong, termination of a life, should also be illegal? Because that's mm-hmm. the that's the yeah. kind of the escape hatch, isn't it? Yeah. Like, oh, I don't like abortion, but I'm not going to tell you what to do with your yeah. life. And that's that's really the safe uh, pansy answer <laughs> yes, <laughs> to say, well, I don't I don't true. personally like abortion, but I'm not going to tell you what to do. And that's well, then you must not actually believe what happens inside of an abortion facility every single day is violence, because if you saw the broken bodies of 2,700 human beings every night on the nightly news piled up outside of abortion facilities, you would say, my God, we have to end this. We have to do something here. But because it happens behind the closed doors, we can kind of say, well, that's a theoretical question. Mm-hmm. That's a philosophical question. And we don't see the reality of what's happening. But the, but what happens every single day is an act of violence. And you have to make abortion illegal and unthinkable. Our goal in the pro-life movement is a twofold goal because you can't just change hearts because you're right. Some people will still have abortions and you can directly look at 1973 when Roe and Doe were handed down, the rates of abortion skyrocketed. Making abortion legal made a lot of people think that it was morally okay because some people, they shouldn't do this, you know, they get their morals from laws. Yes. And you really shouldn't do that if you look through the history of our country because we've, we've messed up sometimes. Yeah. But you, you have to make it illegal as well as unthinkable. So notice in that clip what she said there. She said if you realized and saw on the nightly news the 2,700 unborn babies their bodies piled up in a pile of refuge refuse outside of an abortion clinic, then it would change your thought process on this issue. And I think she makes a very good point because when we're not talking about actual babies, when we're just talking about the philosophical argument, as she put it, it's very easy to say, well, I can't put myself in the other person's shoes and I can't, uh, so I can't say anything against their decision to abort their child. But what I have worked so hard to convey, and the reason this is so important to me, is that a child's humanity is not determined by the circumstances of their existence. I I had actually had a, a slight confrontation with uh, my liberal uncle, who, when I asked the simple question a few months ago, uh, when does life actually begin? When is it acceptable or how long is it acceptable to end a, end a human life and an unborn life? Because obviously they would argue that it's not human, but to end an unborn life and for it to be totally acceptable. If a baby is a baby five minutes before it's born at nine months, then what about eight months or what about seven months or what about six months? And rather than answering the question, my uncle said this. He said, it's not right for you to talk about your life as something that is expendable because your parents wanted me, wanted you. And so basically what he was saying is because your parents wanted you, you were valuable. But the reason that I am valuable is not because my parents wanted me. The reason that I am valuable is because I was made in the image of God. And so I think one of the things that we need to do is as the left and as the pro-abortion lobby 
takes every opportunity to dehumanize the unborn baby. We need to humanize the unborn baby. We need to think in those terms about those 2,700 babies that are piled up outside of abortion clinics or more, more, more often, more realistically in a secret room. Um, if you read Abby Johnson's, uh, book on plan, you'll find out that they had a room with dismembered babies where the password was actually baby, if you can believe it or not. But the reality is that, that the abortion lobby does not want people to see uh, ultrasounds. They fight whenever, whenever there's laws that come up. When I was working for right to live in Michigan, we had a, we had a law that we were fighting for to, to require abortion facilities to give women the opportunity to see their baby on an ultrasound. We weren't saying that you have to see your baby on an ultrasound. We were just saying you need to be required to give that option because if it's really a choice, you need to give both sides of the choice. The reality is that abortion stops a beating heart. We understand when someone gets older and dies or when they're outside of the womb and dies, we understand that the stoppage of their beating heart signifies their death. You know, sometimes we can get a heart started again, but in general, we understand that the stoppage of a beating human heart leads to death. But for some reason, we have a hard time with the idea that the starting of a human heart leads to life. And I'd encourage you to go back and um, listen to this episode of the Charlie Kirk show. I will make sure to put a link for the full episode on my blog post for this podcast. So make sure you avail yourself of it because she goes into more detail about how important it is to realize why fighting for human life is important. And I'll just say, too, that for me, I just think about when the Declaration of Independence was was put together, what, what was the first part of that? They said this. We, they said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are the right to... And the first one is life. And so when people wonder why I'm so passionate about this issue, why I continue to talk about it on my podcast, I will simply tell you, without the right to life, no other rights matter. There's no right to vote without the right to life. There's no right to work without the right to life. There's no right to health care without the right to life. All of these supposed perceived rights that everybody's fighting for on Capitol Hill, none of them matter if you don't have the right to life. Okay, the second clip, also from that episode of the Charlie Kirk Show, um, and and basically the episode is something like why Roe versus Wade's days are numbered, but this second clip talks, gives some detail about Doe versus Bolton. Now, the significance of Doe versus Bolton, even though it's not talked about very much, is that it was handed down the same day as Roe, and basically it made sure that the right to abortion 
was available through all nine months of pregnancy because there actually were some limits um, based on the age of viability that Roe versus Wade put in place. Even though they didn't do a good job of identifying what the age of viability was, there was some some limits that they put in place. So here is cut two of the Charlie Kirk show talking about Doe versus Bolton. What is they, Doe versus Bolton? So the, when Roe was handed down January 22nd, 1973, a lot of people do not know this, but Roe only legalized abortion the first trimester. The, the court made up this trimester system the first three months. They, on the same day, they handed down a second decision, Doe v. Bolton. Doe v. Bolton allows abortion in all nine months of pregnancy for whatever reason, elu- using a loose definition of a woman's health. So you can go in and say, I have mental anguish. Yeah. That's hurting my health. Therefore, abortion can happen up to the moment of birth. So people actually do not – like I'll be on NPR and people will argue with me that abortions do not happen in ninth month. And you can go to Albuquerque, New Mexico, the late-term abortion capital of the world. Right. Women fly, you fly across the globe to abort their children at 37 weeks. There you have it, folks. Albuquerque, New Mexico is the late-term abortion capital of the world or of the United States, I should say. Uh, possibly the world and people fly in from all over the place to go to Albuquerque to end their child's lives as late as nine months of pregnancy. It's not as big of an issue now because the Supreme court actually ruled in the pro on the pro-life side, but a while back there was a big push for partial birth abortion, which involved pulling the baby out of the mother's womb, uh, feet first, getting it up to the neck in the birth canal, and then ending the baby's life by jabbing the back of its neck with scissors. It was thought to be an efficient way and a faster way to do abortion than the typical DNC which involves ripping a baby's limbs off of it and taking it out piece by piece. And it actually was pushed as a way for abortion clinics to make more money. The Supreme Court again voted to outlaw the procedure, so I don't think that it is occurring currently, but this is the landscape upon which we live here in the United States. And I just, I, it's very sad on, on multiple levels, not the least of which we are destroying the image of Almighty God, but also that, that we are just destroying our own offspring, our progeny. And I think it's really amazing to me the number of fertility clinics and the number of abortion clinics. If we could get rid of the abortion clinics we wouldn't need the number of fertility clinics that we have because there would be a lot more babies to adopt. And I don't understand for the life of me why there are so many fertility clinics signifying people wanting to have babies who are struggling so much and yet we have thousands of babies dying every day from abortion. How does this make any sense? Actually, it doesn't, but that's where we're at right now as a nation, folks. And so I'm really prayerful that this Mississippi case 
will be heard and that Roe versus Wade will take some serious blows. Bottom line is New York had abortion three years before Roe versus Wade. So at the very least, I would love to be in a place where a state like Michigan, who has an extremely high pro-life rating and an extremely high regard for life, could go back to their 1972 law, which is one of the most restrictive on abortion in the entire nation. A lot of people don't realize that, but in 1972, just a couple months before the, the decision of Roe versus Wade, in January of 73, I believe in November of 72, we voted as a state to put a lot of restrictions on abortion. And as soon as the Supreme Court got involved, all those restrictions went away. The third cut that I have for you today is from an interview on a podcast called Off the Bench with Heidi St. John. And this is a podcast that my mom started listening to and I decided to subscribe to and I don't listen to every episode but when a title um, jumps out at me I take the opportunity to listen I think that Heidi has a lot of wisdom and she has a lot of good guests that are articulate and make you think and so I want to share with you a clip from this episode where Brian Bomberger who is a pro-life factivist, as he says, talks about the dangers of critical race theory. Now, just a little bit of background on Brian. He is a mixed-race man. One parent was black, one parent was white. His mother was raped, and she gave him life and then gave him up for adoption. And so he, he, when he speaks on this issue, he's speaking as a man of color and as a man of God primarily, and he's talking about how dangerous this could be. And he, first he talks about uh, critical race theory in general, and then in the latter part of the clip, he gets a little bit into reparations. So take a listen. It's a little bit of a lengthy clip. Um, but again, I will put a post, uh, put a link in my podcast for the whole episode when I uh, do my blog post for this podcast. I, I spoke out about this last week on my Facebook page and immediately 7,000 angry liberals, because I've actually never met a happy liberal, 7,000 angry liberals came over to my page and said, you need to shut up and go home. That's your white privilege talking. You have no business in this conversation. And I think a lot of people whose skin is my complexion are being told, you can't speak into this. And by the way, that's your white privilege. And here's your critical race theory book. Go home and read it. <sighs> I hate that. I hate that nonsense that truth is isolated apparently to your pigmentation. Anybody can speak truth regardless of the hue of their skin. And thank God people who are white spoke truth to the issue of slavery. I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be married to my Greek, Italian, and German wife. She is very Greek, Italian, by the way. Yes. My wife, Bethany, I love her like crazy. We, Our marriage would still be illegal if white people didn't speak to this issue. In fact, Frederick Douglass praised white people, some of the most noblest men he said that he's ever known. And you think about Harriet Beecher Stowe. What if she never wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin? Oh, she's white. She can't speak to this issue. 
any person of any hue can speak to any issue of injustice. So don't ever allow anybody to silence you. Get involved in your school boards. Speak up at your church. When you hear something that's coming from the pulpit that is not biblically rooted, challenge, now out of truth and love, challenge your, your pastor. Challenge people in positions of authority. Here in Loudoun County in Virginia, parents have done that. And wow, if you can just go on YouTube and see some of these videos of these Loudoun County uh, parents challenging an ignorant school board that knows nothing about the policies that they're passing and the racism that they're actually promoting. So there are different ways that we can get involved. We just cannot afford to be silent about this because this is a dangerous ideology that is infecting our children who are now seeing each other, you know, in these two groups, the oppressed and the oppressors. And what am I? I'm half white, half black. So I guess I'm in both. I'm both the oppressor and I'm both the oppressed. That is, who wants to see life that way? Yeah. Yeah. And this goes back to the issue of reparations and people feeling like, hey, something that happened 400 years ago, you need to pay up for that now. It's fascinating to me that someone like you, I mean, I just wish I told you this last time, but I just wish you were on the news every single night because there are very few voices uh, like yours that are being allowed. And that's really what it comes down to allowed out into the mainstream media culture, because they want us to see ourselves in category of victim and oppressor. Well, and, and certain people too want to perpetually be the victims or at least promote that narrative. It keeps them in business. I mean, Booker T. Washington wrote about that in his book about those who want to keep up this, this industry of grievances, you know? And so it's, it's interesting because being, Half white, half black. When it comes to reparations, especially, like, does the white half of me pay the black half of me? I mean, this is the whole ridiculousness of reparations. And, and think of it this way. What about the black descendants of those who were black slave owners? You know, Harvard's Harry Louis Gates Jr. writes about black slave owners. So should those descendants also have to pay reparations? And what about the descendants of abolitionists? Should they then be exempt from reparations? I just really appreciate the clarity of mind that Brian brings to this issue of critical race theory and then also reparations. Uh, the reality is that there have been some evil things done in the name of America in the past. That is very true. But we're not in a place where we should treat everybody like an oppressed or an oppressor. Nobody in my family has owned slaves and nobody in my family has ever been in the KKK. I've always been treated, taught that all races are made in the image of God. The races are an expression of God's creativity. The book of Acts says that we are all made from one blood we all have one creator. Um, as the Mandisa song says, we all bleed the same. And then as he was talking about reparations, he's like, well, does, does the white side of me pay the black side of me? And here's just an interesting fact about my own family. My uncle traced our genealogy back to a slave a mulatto slave who got his freedom and then became a slave owner. So in that case, he was both slave and slave owner. So I think we need to be in a place as a society 
where we learn from our past and we push to move forward. And the way some of these things are going is sort of like that, that voting law that I talked to you about last week with the requirement for ID. It's kind of like the soft bigotry of low expectation. We don't expect um, people to be, to accomplish great things because of the color of their skin. Is that right? I don't think so. I just really hope that you will think about these things and that I, that this will foster discussion among your family and friends and that we will show by our Christian love how equal we all are in the eyes of God. The interesting thing is, you know, people will claim that fundamental conservative Christians are white supremacists, but there's no white people in the Bible. The primary characters in the Bible are Jewish in the Old Testament, and then some Greeks and other Gentiles come in in the New Testament, but you don't read about straight-up white people. That's not what you read about in the Bible. What you do read about in the Bible is that there are no races in the eyes of God in the sense that no race is superior to another race. The Bible says that there are no bound and no free, no barbarian or Scythian. In Colossians, it has this whole list of the people who don't have these fault lines between them anymore. We don't have these lines of distinction between them as far as comes with the kingdom of God or with your value in the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean we should be colorblind because as I said, color is an expression of God's creativity to his people. And the reality is the reason that we are able to be creative individuals is because we serve and were created by a creative God. And the races are his example of that to us. All right, well, now we are to the main portion of our show, and I appreciate everyone who's been listening. I have really greatly enjoyed being able to talk about the love of God. Uh, you know, that's, it's really foundational to our faith is understanding the love of God, because we know that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much he loved us. Jesus said the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And he said, I am the good shepherd. And so that is the God with whom we have to do. And I'm just super excited to delve delve into four more aspects of the characteristics of the love of God with you today. Now, there may be several more. The love of God is one of these things that's inexhaustible. If you've ever heard Corey Asbury's song, Reckless Love. He goes into detail about the love of God, and I encourage you to look that song up and just be encouraged and uplifted by it. So here we go with our quote of the day. Our quote of the day comes from Dieter F. 
Oakdorf, and I'm pretty sure that I slaughtered that name, but the quote says, Though we are incomplete, God loves us completely. Though we feel imperfect, he loves us perfectly. Though we f- may feel lost and without compass, God's love encompasses us, is us completely. He loves every one of us, even those who are flawed, rejected, awkward, sour- sorrowful, or broken. And I just, I just really liked that quote, and it really goes along with some of the other things that we were talking about because it says that he encompasses us completely and, and also that he loves every one of us. So whether we are unborn, whether we are black, white, or brown, God loves us. And I want you to hopefully be able to embrace that and believe that about yourself today. Okay, continuing on our list of characteristics of the love of God, the love of God hopes. Paul wrote in Philippians 1.27, Only let your conversation be as becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And this is Philippians 1.27. And in this, Paul is saying, I may not be able to go to come and see you. He, he's in Rome. He's writing to the saints of Philippi, but he's chained to two guards consistently. That is at least the form of, of guarding that he most likely had based on what we understand of prison at that time. It was probably a dank, dark cellar where he was chained to guards. He was there to, to see Caesar. He could have... Uh, avoided this, but he appealed to Caesar, and so he's in Rome, and he's in jail, and he's writing to the saints at Philippi, and he says to them, whether I'm able to come to see you in person or not, I have this hope that you will live godly and Christian lives, that your conduct won't just change because I'm around. We all know how this is. If we are doing something, um, I know for me particularly, I can apply work. If I'm doing something for work and then the boss comes in, I immediately want to do better. That's a human tendency. But as believers, our goal should be able, should be to do as well as we can, whether the boss is watching us or not. The reality is that we are to do our job to please the Lord and not to please men. I believe that is found in Ephesians, also written by Paul. So, Paul has this love for the Philippians where he says, I have this hope in you that you will be godly Christian examples, no matter if I come to see you or not. And so, love hopes. All right. The next one is love always perseveres. This is also Paul. Paul was an encourager. Paul was an exhorter. He is actually one of my Bible heroes, and actually his motivations for writing his epistles are very similar 
to my motivations for doing this podcast. I really want to encourage the saints to walk closer with the Lord Jesus. And this is what Paul says. He says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, and 3. It's very interesting how Paul starts his epistles. Um, He starts with hope. He often starts by telling the saints, I am remembering you in my prayers. This is the good news. Before he has to dig into any uh, instruction that is that is more, uh, maybe may possibly more negative in nature, he will start with an admonishment um, and encouragement reminding these people who they are to him. He started Philippians in a similar way. He said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. So Paul's love was was a love that persevered. In another passage, he said, I'm I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I want to deliver you as a chaste bride to the Lord. And so Paul had a passion that made his love for others persevere. And I love this about Paul because he was he was zealous against the church. He hated followers of the way. He threw them in prison. He was consenting to Stephen's death. And yet God took that zeal that he had to destroy the church of God and turned it 180 and said, okay, Saul, I'm going to form in you a heart for me and you are going to be my messenger to the Gentiles. And that same Paul who who was that same Saul of Tarsus who was doing these evil things to the church was so changed and radically transformed that he changed his name to Paul. He said, there's nothing of Saul left. As a matter of fact, he goes through all the gain that he had, and he said, I count it all rubbish because I won Jesus Christ. That's the radical change that God did in the life of the Apostle Paul. That's the radical change that he can do in your life as well. Third on this list is love never fails. I think it's so important for us to understand this one because modern love, the way we understand love as a society here in America and probably in other areas of the world, but especially in this Western culture that we find ourselves in in America, is that love as we understand it is fleeting. How often do you hear uh, couples that break up that say, I don't love that person anymore? Or they might even say, I hate that person or I can't stand them. I I first began to uh, experience this actually in my late teens, early 20s as I started to pay close attention to people dating around me. And it seemed like the American way of dating is that you dated somebody for a while until you fell out of love or until something went wrong with the relationship. And then as soon as you broke up, you couldn't stand the person that you were with before. You hated them. 
You didn't want to be around them. You couldn't be a part of their lives in any way, shape, or form. And I'm thinking, that's actually pretty sad, because that's not what we are called to be. We are called to be a brother and a sister to every believer who is in our lives. So, love never fails. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Ephesians 4.32 So lest we think that we can't love or forgive, Paul puts it right out there for us. He says, well, Christ forgave you. He forgave you everything you ever did. He took your evilness, your vileness, your wickedness, and he put it on himself on the cross, and he gave you his righteousness. And if the God of the universe who created you and could have destroyed you on the spot said instead, I'm going to stay on the cross, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again, to show my love for mankind and for each individual person. The Bible says that the very hairs of our head are numbered. So I'm, I have no doubt that he was thinking of the individuals when he was on the cross, his 12 disciples and beyond. I think one thing that gets lost as we study Jesus is we, we see his we see him walking around the earth and we forget that he was 100% deity at that time. That the only thing he gave up, so to speak, as far as deity went, was he ceded that control, the control of his deity, to the will of his father. Because there were obvious times, like when he did miracles, when he showed his deity. But there were other times, like when he was on the cross, that he kept it in check and he did not use it. Because his job and his desire was to do the will of his father. That's an extremely amazing thing if you think about it. So, so far, today, we have studied the characteristics of the love of God, which include love hopes, love always perseveres, and love never fails. So, the final aspect of the characteristics of the love of God in our series and if you can think of some others that I never mentioned in this series, by all means, share them with me. I may do another podcast because as we've already discussed, the love of God is actually inexhaustible. But in Colossians chapter 3.14, it says, um, as we're talking about love is the greatest, and above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Colossians chapter 3, verse 14. Perhaps that's why we read in 1 John, everyone that loveth knows God. 
because God is love. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Why did Jesus say that? There were ten commandments given uh, by Moses. And there were several other laws given by God in the Torah or the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. So why would Jesus say that these two were the most important? He said this because every other law, every other command of God is encompassed in these two things. Everything that God wants us to do is filed under two different categories, either loving God the best we can or loving others the best we can. If we get those two things right, everything that is under it, which is everything, will fall into place. What a wonderful truth that is. As I said, I've enjoyed sharing this series with you. I hope that it has been beneficial. If it has, please think of maybe one or two people that you can share it with. All of the episodes for this series are available on my website. You may download them free of charge. If you would like an opportunity to have them as a series on one CD, please contact me and I will see what I can do about making that happen. I am working on, hopefully in the near future, getting a digital marketplace going. But until that time comes, as I said, all my podcasts are always available free of charge, and I encourage you to download them and distribute them however you feel the need. I don't do this podcast as someone who has it all together, but I do this podcast because when I was a little boy of about five years old, I met the one who has all the answers. I met the one who has it all together and he has been trying his best and he will not fail. By the way, he has been trying his best to put me together. And the book of Philippians says this, he who had begun a good work in me will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's Philippians one six. And I believe the same thing for you today. I hope that you have a great week and that you keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at Speaking for Him. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review. 